Last time that we considered God's Word together, we got to look at five different stories. And I want to just refresh your memory very quickly. The first story that we looked at was a story about a choice. And you remember it was about the people uh, of the tribe of Dan and their inheritance. And they had a choice to make. And will we go in and take this inheritance that the Lord has given us? And to them it seemed too hard. And so they made a choice of compromise. And it led to our second story about a place. And it became a place of compromise, the place that they set up. They went to the north uh, outside of the inheritances that God had given and found the ancient city of Laish there, and they took that city. And they renamed it Dan after themselves, the city of Dan. And it was located on one of three main sources of the Jordan River, the spring here that comes out of the uh, hill just, as I talked about, just comes gushing right out there on one of those sources. And that became the city of Dan. That led us to our third story, which was a story about a voice. And it was a voice of compromise. And we looked at the character of King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, as the kingdom of Israel was divided, had an opportunity, a God-given opportunity that he could use. And God promised to bless him if he would follow after God. But instead, he was afraid to lose what he had been given and the power, and he set up a false worship system in Israel at two locations, at Bethel and at Dan in the north. And he said, in the voice of compromise to the Israelites, it's too, what? Hard for you to go up to Jerusalem, O Israel. And so here are the places where you can worship. And he set up a system of idolatry. Here is the high place at the city of Dan and the replica of the ancient altar that was there that we saw at that time. And that led us to another story, which was a story about progression. Because what we saw that started there uh, as two places set up that were dedicated to idolatry became, as we read later in the history of the kings and chronicles, uh, a progression of idolatry that swept throughout the land to the point where it said that in every city, on every high hill, there was idolatry happening. And you know what that ultimately led to. It was a story of progression as this idolatry swept over the land. And we finally said this statement, small compromises turn into large compromises and result in catastrophic consequences. And you know that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria in 722. The southern kingdom fell to Babylon in 586. And we saw devastation result from all of that, turning away from the Lord into idolatry. That finally led us to our fifth story, which was a story about Jesus. It was a story where Jesus intentionally led his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which was right there next to the ancient city of Dan. And he there intentionally asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answered a number of things, and then he challenged them personally, but what about you? Who do you say the Son of Man is? And we saw that there's this consistent pattern in the life of Jesus to resist 
temptation, to resist compromise, to stand fast in the face of it from the very beginning of his ministry in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan to this point of his ministry where he comes to Caesarea Philippi and he tells the disciples the plan and Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. One of those opportune times Satan was waiting for and Jesus rebukes Peter unwittingly, the mouthpiece of Satan in this moment, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. All the way forward to six to nine months from here where Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane, so tested, so under pressure that very night, and yet praying to his heavenly Father, yet not as I will, but as you will. Standing fast from the beginning to the end of his ministry, and we said finally that the antidote antidote to compromise is to stand strong. And we ended in Ephesians chapter 6, looking at those words to us. That was last time. And last time we followed the theme of compromise. And I promised that we would come back and we would look at the place, Caesarea Philippi. And that's what we're going to do today in following this story further. So I want you to turn with me back to Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles and look at verse 13. Matthew 16 verse 13. And there it tells us, the very beginning, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, we're picking up the theme of the place here. Caesarea Philippi, you can hear in the name Caesarea Philippi, you can see it up here on the map, you can hear in the name two names. What names? Caesar and Philip. Herod Philip II was the one who built up the city and named it Caesarea Philippi, and he named it Caesarea in honor of Caesar, the Roman emperor, and he named it very humbly Philippi after who? Himself. (laughs) Uh, Not so humble. You remember that Caesarea Philippi was located very near to the ancient city of Dan. It was located on the second of the three main springs that feed the Jordan River. Here is Caesarea Philippi. Today, I took this picture last April, and uh, this is the water from that spring that's flowing down here. It's uh, also a lot of water coming out of the ground right there. Here's another picture of it here, and um, you can see people walking right up here on this rock uh, walkway. If you're standing here looking on your left, right there, it's dry ground. There is no water there. There's no sogginess. There's no nothing. It's just dry ground. And you're standing on this pile of rocks that's been made into this walkway, and you just look down here, and the water is just just flowing out of it. It just comes out of the ground right there. All of that water is, is just boom, gushing out. It's really an amazing spot to be at and look at. Um, let me give you another picture here. I want you to see in the background this large cave up in there. That cave is where the water used to flow out. In Jesus' day, the water flowed out of the cave. Later, there was an earthquake, and the water shifted and ends up coming out. Whoops, just below that. I went backwards. Uh, But in Jesus' day, the water flowed out of that cave. Uh, Here's another view of closer to the cave. You can see it's a big cave. That's uh, a tall, big mouth coming out of that rock in the side of that mountain there. And all of that water just gushed out of the mouth of that cave. And it was called in that day the Gate of Hades. It's, 
it's like they pictured as the opening to the underworld. They viewed it as a bottomless pit. Nobody had gone down there. It's not like they had scuba gear and, you know, or something. The, all this water just comes out of this mouth, and they viewed this as this opening to the underworld somewhere down in the depths of the earth and called it the Gate of Hades. In the time when the Danites captured the city of Laish, clear back there, clear at that time, this spot, just a little ways away from that, was already a site dedicated to pagan worship. It was dedicated at that time to worship of the Canaanite god Baal, or Baal. And here's a statue of him holding the lightning bolt that's the famous god of the storm, the deity uh, Baal. In later times, uh, in 333 BC, Alexander the Great conquered this entire region. And Alexander the Great was from what empire? Testing all you history people, and Louise is smiling. The Greeks, okay? And so when that area was conquered under the Greco-Roman Empire, um, we have now Greek mythology coming into this area, and this site became a site dedicated to the worship of the Greek god Pan. Uh, and so the site is sometimes called Paneus as Greek god uh, worship of Pan. Now Pan in Greek mythology is the god of the wild, the god of shepherds and flocks, nature and the mountains, uh, hunting and rustic music. He's said to be the companion of the nymphs, which are in Greek mythology these um, young, beautiful uh, spirit girls of the mountains and valleys, meadows, who are sexually carefree, all of that kind of stuff. And he's the companion of the nymphs. Uh, he has, as you can see here, the hindquarters of a goat in the, the mythology and the way he's described. The, the legs and horns of a goat, but he's um, got the trunk of a man and he's um, worshipped as a god of fertility and the season of spring. I was trying to find images and this is about the only one I could say was fit for public display. Most of them are way too sexually erotic because it's very, very um, explicitly that type of a, a worship. So you can imagine the type of worship happening at this site. Here's a depiction of the ancient temple at this site. You can see here is where the cave is and where the spring came out. In the day of Jesus, this is the temple dedicated to the worship of Pan. This temple over here is actually worship, um, dedicated to the worship of Caesar and is actually built a few years after Jesus' time. So it, in Jesus' day, the spring is flowing here. Here's the God uh, dedicated to the God of Pan. I also want you to see a couple of things. This is the ancient ruins that are still there today. So you see the columns and the foundations of the temple that stood right there. You can also see in the rock these uh, uh, enclaves that are cut into the rock. In each of those enclaves, would have been a statue of one of the nymphs. And so on a daily basis, they had sacrifices, they offered offerings at the different um, enclaves where the different nymphs were. And so that was all part of the ancient uh, mythology and the religion that was there. This place is the setting then of our story as Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16. 
I said earlier that Herod Philip II had made it his capital city. So this is an important place, and Jesus brings his disciples there. Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus do this by accident? Rhetorical question. Obviously, everybody answers no. You don't just walk 25 miles from Sea of Galilee up north to this spot by accident. Jesus chose to come here. And when he got here, he posed this most important question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And pressed them in for their answer to the question. I want you to think about this a little bit, to think about the impact that this trip must have made on the disciples. Okay, think about who these guys are. They're basically a bunch of good Jewish boys. Maybe a little bit of exception in there, but for the most part, this is the crowd of disciples Jesus has. Uh, They have grown up hearing the Mosaic law taught, going to synagogue, all their lives, um, eating kosher, Jewish food, staying separate from the culture around, going up to Jerusalem three times a year for the required feasts. All of this is, is their cultural background. And now Jesus takes them out of that place to Caesarea Philippi. I think it would be a little bit like you and me going to Las Vegas, perhaps. Maybe I could take a discipleship group of mine you guys ready? I took my guys last week out to the Buffalo jump, but Nick, next week we're going to go to Las Vegas, right? Um, we call Las Vegas uh, Sin City, and, and Las Vegas is proud of it, right? Can you imagine what it's like for just a moment for the disciples? This is a place they don't feel comfortable. This is a place of paganism, of pagan worship the political center of this area. This is a a place dedicated to all kinds of immorality. Can you imagine the conversations as these guys are going there and realize Jesus is taking them there on the way? What are we going to see? What's going to happen? Can you imagine as they start walking into the city and through the gates and seeing all the stuff around? Can you imagine them elbowing each other like, did you just see that? You know, walking by. There, this is a real place that Jesus took them and made them uncomfortable. And I'm leaving this picture up there to make you uncomfortable for just a little while, okay? He did this on purpose. And then we read in our story, and I put it up here again, you can look at it in your Bible, but when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In that context, in Las Vegas, in Sin City kind of thing. He says, who do they say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? He's going to press them for their answer in that context. And he's pressing his disciples, what do they believe? What will they stand on? And he intentionally brought his disciples to this place, to the capital of Herod Philip, the center of paganism. And then Peter answers for them all, what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bang, there it is. And Jesus replied these words, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now Jesus here is using a play on words that's connecting to the surroundings. You need to know just a little bit of Greek to get this. 
The name Peter is the Greek word Petras for rock or stone. And just like in other languages, Greek has masculine and feminine uh, nouns. And so the name Petras is the masculine form of that, the name Peter. So when Jesus says this, I, I say that you are Peter. The man is who he's referring to. This is your name. And then he says, and on this rock, and he uses the feminine Petra, uh, I will build my church. And he distinguishes that from Peter. The, using the feminine, now on this rock, I will build my church. Of course, that sparks off debate about what did exactly Jesus mean, and that's been interpreted different ways down through the years. You know that the Catholic Church interpreted Jesus to mean, um, and on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And so hence the doctrine of the Pope and papal succession that flows out of this text and so they believe that's the interpretation. I think they got it wrong, um, but that's what they believe. Another interpretation says that what he meant by that, and on this rock I will build my church, that Jesus is referring now to the statement of faith that Peter had just made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it's, it's that foundation, that foundational statement, this declaration of faith upon which Jesus will build his church. Um, Gail can probably remember when I was a student in Greek that I wrote a paper for Greek on this text and I argued in that paper for this, that interpretation that I just said. And there's some merit for that, um, some good merit for that. If, and certainly nobody's going to argue with the fact that that statement of faith is key and pivotal to what the church is going to be and do. I've since changed my view on that um, to the last position that I will give you here. And that is, I believe that Jesus is referring to his surroundings as he's there. And I've done that because I start to see uh, what's going on there. Is there any rock in this picture? Yeah, there's a lot of it, right? This whole place is, is built right into the rock. Coming down from Mount Hermon here, this whole place is this rock. So he's saying... I tell you that you are Peter, rock, your name, and on this rock, what rock is he referring to? I imagine him looking at his surroundings, and I strengthen that because then in the very next phrase, he says, what? And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I think, personally, that he's referring to this place, this place that's titled this in his day that's there, and, and we're standing there, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What's he saying? I think it's as if Jesus is saying, guys, I'm going to build my church right on top of this place. It's almost as if he's saying, guys, I'm going to bulldoze this place. I'm going to, right on, on top of this rock, on top of this foundation, on top of this place of paganism, I'm going to bulldoze this place. And I'm going to build my church right over the top of it, right over the top of the ruins of paganism. This place dedicated to it, I'm going to build my church here. It will supplant paganism. It will supplant this false worship. I believe it's an offensive picture. City gates, you know, are put there for defense. So if the gates don't stand against the church, it means that the church is on offense, not on defense. Here are some pictures of the ancient city of Dan. Here's the ancient city wall, just a little ways away. And I just want to help you understand the concept of gates here for a minute. 
That's a big wall, and it's still standing today. That's like over 3,000 years old, and it's still standing. It's a big wall. Um, from here, I don't have any people in here, but, you know, a six-foot man maybe comes up to here, okay? And they believe this is taller than that in its original day. Here is a picture going into the gate of the city of Dan. Right here, these rocks are um, the place where the doors of the gate would come and stop, uh, the door stopper kind of deal. And so you see the gates coming in here. If you go inside further, what you actually have, let me go back, you can see that all these people in here are standing. There's a double gate at the city of Dan. There's this gate, the outer gate, and there's another courtyard in here and another gate here, which we're standing next to. And you can see even here how tall the wall is. This little platform right here is the platform where they would have a statue of the local deity. And the people who are coming into the city will come and bring their little token offering that says, you know, be nice to us, local deity, um, to appease this deity as they come in this place of false worship. This is looking out of the gate now. You can see more clearly the flagstones that are here, the stopper for the, the doors. What I want you to notice, though, is the city wall is built here, and they have not excavated all this, but you can see where the city wall continues on around the hill. And it's tall, it's big, and it goes around. And then from here, it takes a hard right and goes down the courtyard that way. So you can see that if you're going to attack this city at its most vulnerable point, the gate, it's strategically built, isn't it, for defense. Does that make sense? You're an army coming up here. Number one, this is not a very big area. You're going to not be able to bring like a thousand guys in here. You're going to have to attack the gate with relatively few. Number two, all of this whole wall is going to be lined with their archers and spearmen. And so is this wall going over here. And you've got to come in here and make a right angle to attack it. So it's strategically defensible in that area so that the gate has the maximum defensive purpose. That's what city gates are all about in that if you've got a wall and you're going to wall it up and have a, a gate to defend your city. Here it is looking a little bit further away and so you can see the wall going down this side and here's this courtyard area and the other wall is coming back along the other side. So it's all about defense. Jesus bringing his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, has just come up the Jordan River Valley, and the road goes right past the ancient city of Dan, has probably come just past there. I don't know, maybe they stopped there. Either way, they go up to Caesarea, and there's another city very similar to this, with the ancient gates, the stone walls, and all, and they go through the gates into the city. This is not a foreign concept to the disciples. This is the way cities work there. And so when Jesus says, the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against it. They get the idea that this is an offensive picture. Jesus, it's as if he's saying, my church is going to storm the gates. We're going to take the city. We're going to tear down the stronghold of Satan. Rather than what we saw last time, a progression of compromise, Jesus is promising a progression of a kingdom. We're going to take the gates. We're going to storm that fortress. What I want you guys to see today is that if you're a Christian, then you're on mission with Jesus. 
He's called us to that. To build His church, I believe over the rubble heap of paganism, the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against us. Christians, were on offense. These are our marching orders. You know the words. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. These are our marching orders. We're on offense. Sadly, I think way too many Christians in our own day and down through the ages have taken a defensive posture. We're supposed to be on offense, but sometimes we want to hide behind the walls, the protective walls of our churches. We should be engaging the lost with the gospel, taking it to the, um, the, the people who need it. Okay, so somebody objects then, well, aren't we just all hiding in our Christian bubble here at Montana Bible College? We're on defense here, we're not on offense. I say absolutely the contrary. I view Montana Bible College like officer training school. You're here not because you were running away from the battle. Maybe some of you. Maybe some of you are. Okay, I kind of came to Bible College that way at the beginning. I kind of came because I was running from the environment that I was in. I was so sick of the secular high school environment and all that. I just... Didn't want any more of that. I thought Bible college would be safe. Okay, so that's kind of how I came. Maybe that's you. I think most of you are here because you want to be trained. Most of you are here because you want to be equipped to engage in the battle. Most of you are here in officer training school, if I can say it that way, so that you can be sent to the front lines, so that you can be effective on the battlefield. We don't send a whole bunch of young men and women into battle without training. We equip them so that they'll be effective in the battle. That's how I view MBC. You're here to be trained and equipped to go to the battle. You're on your way to the battle. And yes, you're engaging it right now as well. Think of how many of you right now are working in jobs where you have coworkers who don't know the Lord how many of you right now are involved in ministries in local churches around here where not everybody believes and many of them need the Savior? And beyond that, many are, are young and infantile in their faith and they need to grow and become strong and equipped that they will engage the battle as well. And you have ministry there. And think of how many of you have opportunity even now through things like ISI, evangelism opportunities over at the MSU campus, ministries that you're in there. Yes, you can engage the battle now. How many of you are going to go home at Thanksgiving to families who have family members who need the Lord and you're praying for them and, and you're thinking about your witness as you go home? Yes, you're engaging the battle now, but you're preparing and equipping yourself to serve many of you full-time, some of you vocationally in the battle. You're going to be on offense. <laughs> That's the point. We're training you to go out and engage. I want you to think about the community where you come from, or maybe the community that you intend to be in after you graduate from NBC. 
and maybe you can't even put a specific name on it, but at least think of the community you're from for a minute. Let me ask you to consider this question. Where is the darkest place in that community? The, the place where Satan seems to have the strongest foothold and presence in that community. Maybe you'd say, oh, it's the school. Absolutely. Or maybe you'd say, no, it's the bar. Or maybe some of you would say, I think it's my house. Some of you might. <laughs> some of you might look at it and say, no, it's, it's the local trailer park. There, it's just there's this awful atmosphere in that, in that geographical place in that neighborhood. Maybe it's the Rotary Club. <laughs> I don't know. When, I want you to think of that place, and then I want you to think what would happen if the good news of Jesus came to that place with power. And people who have been held captive by the kingdom of darkness were set free by the gospel, were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and their lives are radically transformed as the Holy Spirit dwells them and begins to radically change them. What would that place look like? What would happen in that place of darkness? What if the lives of our family members were radically transformed? What if hatred were turned to love? What if depravity became purity? We live, you guys, in the middle of a culture of compromise, and we all know it. We feel it on a daily basis. It's what everybody's doing. It's kind of like the Israelites who built those high places on every hill and in every town. Opportunity for compromises are facing us every single day of our life. But we are called to be in the world, not of the world, but in the world. Jesus is calling you to be done with compromise, no more lukewarm living. Rather, we're on offense, and we're taking the gospel into a world that Jesus described as he saw it through his eyes as a whole bunch of scattered people, like sheep without a shepherd, a harvest that's white for reaping. Even now, he says, the reaper draws his wages. He's already at work. He said to the disciples, can you see it? Open your eyes and look. The harvest is now. Look again in Matthew 16 at Jesus' words to his disciples right here. Look at verses 24 and 25. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. I want you to look at these two phrases for a moment. Whoever wants to save his life, do you recognize in that a defensive posture? Whoever wants to save his life. Oh, don't harm me. Don't kill me. Don't make me uncomfortable. I want to protect my life. I want to save my life. But do you recognize in the next statement, whoever loses his life for me, an offensive posture, a I'm taking my life out, I'm offering my life, I'm going to a place where danger abounds, where I might die, I'm, here's my life. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. You know uh, the story of Jim Elliott, one of five famous missionaries killed by the Alka Indians in 1956. Jim is famous for writing in his diary these words. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. His life uh, to gain what he cannot lose. That's a good deal. Jim is also less famous, but the author of these words. Rest in this. It is his business, that's Christ's business, to lead, command, impel, send, call, or whatever you want to call it. It is your business to obey, follow, move, respond, or what have you. Jesus is our head. He's the leader. He's the one leading us. He's the one who said, I will build my church. And he's the one who said, make disciples of all nations. What about us? Who do you say that Jesus is? Whoops, that slide wasn't even supposed to be on there. Neither is that one. We'll go back. We'll just leave it there. Um, who do you say that Jesus is? If he's the Lord, the Christ, the Son of the living God, then follow him. Then go with him where he leads. Then go where he sends to the world. Take the gospel to the world. Call sinners to repentance. Call them to faith. I want to ask you just this question as we begin to wrap up today. And that is this question. What would it look like for you personally to take a step right now in your life of being on offense? What would it look like for you personally to take a step of being on offense? I think for some of you, it might simply look like a renewed dedication to complete officer training school. <laughs> you need to be on offense, and part of what you're here for right now is the training that you can be fully engaged in that mission. But some of you know that you're maybe a little scared to take the gospel to your unbelieving family at Thanksgiving or to go over on the MSU campus with Brennan and share Jesus with folks. Um, so some of you may need to say a, a step of offense for me right now is I, I need to get over my fear of man and begin to share the gospel with people now. There's other potential ways, but could I just suggest that you just, if, if the Lord's convicting you in any way of this, would you just turn to your neighbors right now, the people close to you, and just share with them for, I'm going to give you like one minute. But what would it look like for you personally right now to take a step of becoming more offensively engaged in the kingdom? Go. Share with each other for a moment. I'm going to bring you back because we don't have a lot of time, and I know you could have more conversation there. I hope that you can continue some of that conversation, maybe as you eat your lunch today and as you're moving on towards your next class. Just talk to the person next to you and be like, how about you? What is it going to look like for you to take a step of being more offensive if we've been maybe in a position of a defensive spot? Maybe it's a dark place that you know that God would have you step into, um, whatever that would be. I want to summarize again by saying this. We are a kingdom on offense. 
And I want us to follow our leader, our head, Christ himself, as he leads us into that harvest field, into that battlefield, however you want to describe it. Let me pray for you, and we'll let you out of here. Our Father in heaven, uh, you have called us, and you have commissioned us. You have made us ambassadors, people who are sent with this wonderful message of reconciliation. We ask that your spirit would work in us to help us to do what Jesus called his disciples to, laying down their lives, taking their cross daily to follow you. Help us to lose our life to gain what we can never lose, to ultimately find it. Pray that you would strengthen each one of us in this room with conviction of what you're doing in us, what you're calling us to, that we will answer that call and be faithful because you are faithful in us. You will not leave us alone. All authority in heaven and on earth is yours. And so it's our business to lead others where you're leading us and to continue marching forward. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.